Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 8th, 2022. And we're talking America today, as always, or as so often in the show, and the failures and perhaps some strengths of the American experiment. Uh, it was an interesting piece earlier this week by Ed Luce, the, I think, always very prescient uh, American correspondent for the Financial Times. He's been on the show a couple of times before. Uh, he describes America as um, history's most successful failing state. He doesn't call it a failed state, but a failing state, an incompetent state, a dysfunctional one. Um, uh, and he suggests that uh, U.S. politics more looks more like Belgium's every day. In other words, what Ed is saying is that the American state has withered, it's corrupt, it's incompetent, it doesn't attract the smartest people or very much money. So it's not able to address the core problems in American society, perhaps like Belgium. Has it always been that way? Maybe, maybe not. That's what we're going to be talking about today. My guest is Dale Kretz, a former historian, now a labor organizer, has a new book out called Administering Freedom, the State of Emancipation After the Freedmen's Bureau, and he addresses an all too important issue, central issue in American history, which I don't, to be honest, I don't know much about, which is fascinating. The role of the American state in post-emancipation America in terms of helping the emancipated slaves. Uh, Dale is joining us from Pasadena today in California. Uh, Dale, am I uh, framing this book and this conversation correctly was um is the book about the failure and in some ways i guess the successes of the american state in addressing uh the most persistent the most profound problem in american history the existence of slavery and its abolition after the sec uh, after the civil war absolutely i think that's uh, a very uh profoundly correct framing of one of the most vexing problems of the history of, of emancipation in the United States, uh, which was how was the federal government going to manage the incorporation of 4 million formerly enslaved you know, men, women, and children into the post-slavery you know, new liberal order? What was that going to look like? Uh, in the antebellum period, uh, this very question really vexed and stymied uh, the leading abolitionists of the day, they simply couldn't really envision what freedom would look like. Black abolitionists came the closest. And in my study, I really focus on the perspective of the formerly enslaved because they had their own understanding of what, what freedom would mean. Um, so it wasn't simply to them a state that was conferred in 1865. It wasn't like an abstract, you know, legal space. Uh, formerly enslaved people were you know, taught uh, to personalize power. Uh, they understood that being free meant being incorporated in a powerful state that has the capacity to not only recognize its citizens, but protect them uh, and to provide for the 
the general welfare. And so uh, what the piece you brought up earlier signals and what my book really centers on is this question of state capacity. Uh, is the you know, federal administrative state capable of managing uh, certain phenomena? Uh, in this case, the emancipation of 4 million men, women, and children in yeah, 1865. Uh, for better or worse, it seems to me as an outsider that Americans are preoccupied, obsessed with racism, one way or the other. Some are racist, some aren't. Um, and the focus on the Civil War and the post-Civil War period has been on racism. But probably a more important subject is the role of the state in addressing racism and righting the wrongs of slavery. Is that a fair point? Yeah, I think so. And the two go hand in hand. So the, the sort of stock narrative to Reconstruction is, you know, very much focused on the ways in which the forces of reaction, like the reactionary, you know, white Democrats or the, you know, Klan terrorists or other terrorist groups, you know, crushed uh, the Reconstruction project and destroyed the promise of emancipation for, for generations. And that story of reaction is very important. Uh, it's very easy to see. It's very dramatic. It's very, you know, in your face. Uh, because it was so violent and bloody. Yeah, I mean, it's very Hollywood, isn't it? For a, it a is, yeah. And it likes Hollywood narratives. Right. So that's that's a story of how the forces of reaction destroyed Reconstruction and the Reconstruction Project, at least for a time. But there's another, you know, more subtle, but I would argue no less sinister story, uh, which involves the state and the way in which the liberal state, the liberal order, uh, bureaucratized the promise of Reconstruction to death. Uh, and we see that especially with the sort of leading edge of the emancipationist struggle, formerly enslaved veterans and their families of the United States colored troops. Yeah, you remind us in an interesting piece that you also write uh, for Jacobin magazine uh, that African-Americans, and sometimes people forget this, fought for freedom in the antebellum South. Are you suggesting then that the, the state failed to recognize and reward that uh, military commitment on the part of many black soldiers? It did and it didn't. So it recognized the contributions of black soldiers as if they were any other union veteran. Right. And so that's why they were, you know, incorporated seamlessly, but you know, wrongly into the pension bureau on, you know, putatively equal terms with their white northern counterparts. And this, you know, seemingly equal footing invited a host of issues, including what we would now call structural racism, to work in you know, various ways to undermine the claims of, of black soldiers. And so what you know, formerly enslaved veterans and their families needed was, was something you know, different than the ordinary run-of-the-mill pensioning. They had a different view on what uh, government owed them. Right. Because their service didn't begin in 1861 when some of them enlisted in the war. It began, you know, as soon as they were born, uh, laboring uh, unrequitedly uh, for the benefit of the nation, you know, economically and and socially. Um, and so they always viewed even these individual claims for bounties and pensions in more collective terms. It gave them a collective purchase on citizenship. Uh, but that sort of sense of collectiveness was always you know, running headlong into the atomizing forces of the new liberal order, epitomized by pensions. Um, what, what was the role of, of Wall Street? We did a show with Jonathan Daniel Wells um, uh, in 2020 on what he describes as the deep ties between slavery and Wall Street. 
there wasn't the term neoliberal back in the middle of the 19th century, and there was no such thing as neoliberalism. However, um, capitalism was relatively mature in the middle of the 19th century. How did these forces play themselves out? And were most quote-unquote capitalists, or at least the barons of capitalism, opposed to the creation of a stronger state to address the iniquities and uh, injustices of slavery? That's a really good question. So uh, capitalism definitely plays a role in the story, and especially the um, you know, capitalist Northeast. Um, terrorists were what paid for the pension program, uh, and terrorists generally benefited the North and generally hurt the more agrarian South. Um, and so the Pension Bureau always evoked these, you know, sectional animosities, even though it didn't uh, really, you know, take, take notice of sections. It took notice of loyalty or disloyalty, and there happened to be more loyal, you know, Union veterans in, in the North uh, than the South. Uh, but, you know, the, the pension issue was very much lodged within the larger partisan debates of the late 19th century. And the pension program itself was constructed by by Republicans um, who, you know, were who weren't Republicans as we think of Republicans now, of course. Right, exactly. It was a party of Lincoln, which was initially, you know, devoted to uh, at least the cause of emancipation, and for some, you know, radical Republicans, the cause of of freedom. Uh, but many Republicans after the Civil War began to adopt a, you know, very liberal in the 19th century sense of the term uh, approach to. Uh, citizenship and what the state owes its citizens. Um, so even in the cases of former slaves, you have, you know, Republicans, some with, you know, radical credentials saying that they're freed and now they're on their own. Uh, as early as 1865, they were emancipated into the, you know, cold majesty and the, the hazards of freedom, free to succeed or fail on their own devices. Uh, and any sort of intrusion into that was anathema to you know, the, the cold majesty of the free market. And so a lot of Republicans were very much predisposed to uh, reduce the burdens of, you know, welfare on the federal state as much as possible, even for formerly enslaved people. How much of a public debate was there, Dale? I mean, we did a show on Abraham Lincoln and what his biographer David S. Reynolds described as the tragic failure of Reconstruction. Um, he has a major new biography out. Uh, there were, of course, a number of very significant black intellectuals also articulating their vision, Frederick Douglass, for example. To what extent was this even a debate in America? Was it ever really squarely, honestly addressed that you can't just allow people to become free and not address two centuries of slavery and inequity? It was, you know, very much a live debate, uh, certainly among uh, black Southerners, um, but also, you know, the nation writ large. I mean, we see the debate, you know, flowering first in the years straddling, you know, 1865, particularly in the, you know, heyday of radical uh, reconstruction when you had, you know, white allies such as Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner arguing for the radical redistribution of land in the South, taking it away from the you know, yeah. ultra, so Sumner, uh, in your mind, at least a hero of this in some ways? Uh, at least in, in 1865 and immediately, you know, uh, in the early years of, of Reconstruction, he becomes a liberal Republican um, and you know, somewhat opposed to the sort of vision of, 
emancipation that was still held and kept alive by you know millions of formerly enslaved people. Uh, but still, you know, I'll put him in the good guys section of of this story. Um, and what and about black one. intellectuals? What about Douglas, for example? Mm. Uh, Douglas uh, was also, and his newspaper, The New National Era in Washington, D.C., they were, you know, very much supportive of pensions. Um, even the, you know, financial burden uh, that it brought on the federal treasury. Uh, Douglas and his paper was, you know, one of the major outlets keeping alive the, the pension issue. Uh, he was famous for, you know, not forgetting about the Civil War, not forgetting about what he called the, the Democratic Rebellion. And pensions were a necessary result of the Democratic Rebellion and the slaveholders' you know, uh, insurrection against the state. So pensions ought to be paid uh, for Union veterans as long as possible. And he even, you know, of course, uh, held up uh, the claims of USCT veterans and widows for you know, special consideration owing to their you know, special contributions to winning the war and remaking the nation. Dale, let's get into the the weeds, the necessary weeds in terms of this really important history. Um, what exactly, the, the subtitle of your book, Administering Freedom, is the state of emancipation after the Freedmen's Bureau. What was the Freedmen's Bureau? I did a little bit of research and looked through your books. I mean, there was a, a, a Bureau of Pensions, there was a broader Bureau, there was banks. Was there a, a kind of a, a holding administration, a an umbrella network that created all these other state-funded organizations addressing the consequences of America after slavery? Well, the Freedmen's Bureau was created in March 1865. It was very much a, a product of, of the Republican, especially the radical Republican push to create an agency devoted to formerly enslaved people. Um, it had a radical founding directive to redistribute land, uh, but it also, you know, was in charge of setting up rations and establishing hospitals and schools for freed people and increasingly, you know, mediating contracts between the formerly enslaved and uh, their former enslavers turned employers, especially after the failure of, of the redistribution of, of the lands of the planter class. Um, so, so we see, you know, the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau, which Charles Sumner wanted to include in the Treasury Department, not the War Department, uh, which would have made it much more permanent, uh, an administrative agency, uh, instead of, you know, hampering it by including it in the War Department as a temporary, you know, wartime endeavor, which would, you know, essentially evaporate once uh, surrender uh, and the war was declared over. Um, so, so we see the creation of, of the Freedmen's Bureau. And then because the work of the Freedmen's Bureau was undone or unfinished in 1872, we see the creation of an entirely new federal agency, the Freedmen's Branch, which took one function, one final function of the Freedmen's Bureau, the fulfillment of claims for black soldiers and uh, their widows and dependents, and basically tried to uh, complete that task over the next seven years until 1879. It actually outlived the official you know, federal project of reconstruction itself. And so those are two agencies that I really focused on in the book. They were explicitly devoted towards uh, the formerly enslaved in the post-Confederate South. The U.S. Pension Bureau was different. It has a longer history, uh, but the union pension system uh, did not really operate with the formerly enslaved in mind. It didn't exclude them. Uh, they were very much included, uh, but in ways that you know, very much undermined their, their uh, pursuit of, of pensions. 
Joe Biden, of course, has just successfully uh, passed his Build Back Better uh, program, the bill. What can we learn today in 2022, Dale, from the failures and successes of uh, the period that you study in terms of addressing this fundamental problem, this great crime of American history and writing that crime? Mm. I mean, what were the achievements? Presumably some, some things were achieved. Certainly. I mean, the formerly enslaved did gain, you know, state recognition um, throughout the period of Reconstruction and the overthrow of Reconstruction, which, you know, the white supremacists called the period of redemption. Um, and then uh, beyond throughout the Gilded Age and progressive eras uh, up until the New Deal. So the, the sort of standard or conventional history of this period is, you know, after the death of Reconstruction, you know, the formerly enslaved and their descendants had to turn inward and they were no longer, you know, central to, you know, the political arena. They were very much marginalized uh, politically and socially, despite being, you know, uh, essential workers. Um, and so my story really shows uh, by virtue of focusing on the administrative state instead of the electoral arena, it shows how the formerly enslaved you know, managed to maintain a foothold, even, you know, a toehold at times in the federal government, right? So they were conspicuously entitled uh, to their bounties and pensions when virtually no one else in the Southern region was, it was just them. And so they managed against incredible odds uh, to, you know, maintain and demand uh, federal compensation for their injuries, ailments, and, and needs. Not many were able to do so, comparatively speaking. I mean, it's tough to say how many families were affected. I mean, I estimate around 130,000 Black families, which was, you know, a considerable number. Um, uh, how many freed slaves were there? Uh, there were 4 million formerly enslaved uh, men, women, and children. There were 184,000 members of the U.S. Colored Troops, and about 144,000 of them were formerly enslaved. And so that initial, like, seed of 144,000 USCT soldiers uh, brought into their dependents, uh, their you know wives or widows, their fathers, mothers, children. Um, so that was really the the sort of opening wedge into the administrative state that they held on to you know doggedly for for decades, and it's gone unnoticed as well. Dale, I assume that all the um, all the people employed by what you call the administrative state were white. Not all were, of them. were African Americans yeah. uh, freed slaves. Were any of them able to get jobs in the in the state? Um, a number of them. Uh, about five percent of the pension bureau from the 1880s onward consisted of of black workers. Uh, now they didn't hold you know positions of incredible authority. The highest ranked uh, formerly enslaved uh, employee of the pension bureau uh, was Henry Clay Bruce. Um, and he rose to the status of uh, class two clerk. Uh, but he later published a, a rather fascinating autobiography in 1895 called The New Man, 29 Years a Slave, 29 Years a Freeman, where he talks about his experiences of slavery, but also his uh, employment in the Pension Bureau and his you know, rather uh, odd assessment of various pension commissioners. Um, Charles uh, Douglas, uh, the son of Frederick Douglas, was also employed by the Pension Bureau. He was a member of the uh, so-called Southern Division of the Pension Bureau. And so, you know, Black workers uh, and professionals did see a singular avenue of advancement uh, in the Pension Bureau, 
uh, black newspapers remark that this is a one federal agency where, you know, black workers are treated like men. Uh, they could actually, you know, seek employment when other, you know, federal agencies either barred them outright or, you know, discriminated against them or segregated them in special, you know, divisions. So the Pension Bureau was very much unique in that sense. What about the debate, the, the, the post-Civil War debate within the African-American community on the role of the state itself? Of course, and again, I'm generalizing here, but my understanding was there was a the sort of a more libertarian argument of Booker T. Washington against um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who certainly, I'm guessing, would have viewed the state as more necessary. Do you cover that in the book? What's your take on the debate within the African-American community after slavery about the need for the state. Mm. Definitely. Well, Booker T. Washington, you know, would have been more or less opposed to any form of, of welfare or as he would call it, you know, charity uh, from the uh, federal government or the state government uh, to the formerly enslaved and to black workers in general. How could he uh, justify that, Dale, given, I mean, I understand some of his arguments, but... Mm -hmm. Given two, two, three, maybe 400 years of slavery, how, how is it possible to argue that the state should have no responsibility to right this wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, many historians would argue that, you know, Washington took a, a rather pragmatic view to, okay. you know, the, the, the post-emancipation period. He did not uh, want black workers uh, or the, you know, uh, elderly to be seen as uh, dependent uh, and charitable subjects. He wanted them to exercise thrift and diligence and, you know, hard work and uh, to basically, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, and it was, you know, in many senses, a capitulation to slavery and entirely, you know, inadequate to the, you know, ongoing oppression that, you know, black workers face, especially in the, in the post-slave South. Um, now, W.E.B. Du Bois was, you know, very much in favor of a stronger, more activist role for the federal government. And it's it's good that you bring him up here uh, in his you know, amazing work uh, from 1903, The Souls of Black Folk. Uh, he has an entire chapter on the dawn of freedom, and he devotes most of that chapter to the story of the Freedmen's Bureau and how this was a you know, remarkable federal agency uh, who had a, a monumental task. And it ultimately, you know, was so under-resourced and understaffed and beset by reactionary forces that, that it failed. And it eventually, you know, cleaved to, you know, what he called, you know, the one last vestige uh, of hope, uh, which was, you know, enfranchisement. Uh, and that's it. You know, simply right. enfranchise, you know, the formerly enslaved in the South, and you've done your duty to them. They can vote, you know, their, their oppression away. Uh, and so he very much mourned the you know, passage of the Freedmen's Bureau, but also the, the diminution of its original, you know, radical mission, which could have, as he said, made uh, the South into a great school of citizenship uh, for the formerly enslaved. It would have required a well-funded and permanent agency uh, devoted to their livelihoods. Dale, you weigh your politics on your sleeve. You're on the left. You write for Jacobin Magazine. Uh, you write about the role of unions and this post-Civil War age. And you also write about Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party of America, which at one point was quite powerful. What was the, the, the left, the line of the socialist left or the neo-socialist left 
on this? Did they address it? Did um, so in the latter uh, chapters of my book, I discuss the uh, the rise of the populist movement in the South, which was, you know, an agrarian, biracial, uh, grassroots uh, insurgency against the two party system, against Republicans and Democrats alike. And for years, the role of black populists was downplayed or ignored entirely uh, because the populists of this period. Uh, who were devoted to working class peoples uh, have been unfairly, you know, uh, slandered as, you know, white supremacist. And although, you know, in the latter, you know, periods of the populist movement, when it was being co-opted by the Democratic Party, a number of populist leaders did give in to racism and white supremacy. Uh, but in the early years, especially when, you know, black populists in the agrarian South were at the helm of, of the populist insurgency, it was, you know, the furthest thing from white supremacists. It was devoted to uh, you know, poor and working class people in the South. And so the populists envisioned a radical redistribution of wealth and power in society. And they were also very much attuned to the role of an activist state, uh, which didn't simply, you know, help facilitate the rise of, you know, Northeastern industrial capitalism, uh, but rather uh, would facilitate the uh, protection and economic security of the producing classes. Uh, and so we see the populist movement crushed uh, in the 1890s, just as we see the Pension Bureau uh, take it upon itself to crush the movement for reparations among you know, millions of formerly enslaved people who you know, didn't argue for reparations using that term. Instead, to them, reparations meant an expansion of the pension rolls. They wanted to expand the union pension rolls in order to include the formerly enslaved, uh, regardless of their military service. And so it shows how embedded pensions were and the idea of historical responsibility and material redress was to the, the political landscape of the day. Uh, and the 1890s, again, was a, a crucial moment for the flowering and the uh, crushing of, of these two separate but interrelated movements. Yeah, I want to get onto reparations later. It's still a, a hot, controversial subject. But I'm intrigued by your your remarks on biracial populism. We've had the the leftist populist Thomas Frank and Michael Lind on the show, and they argue quite explicitly to go back to that biracial populism. Are you in the Frank Lind camp when it comes to learning from the past and trying to resurrect a biracial populism? I mean, certainly in the late 19th century, that would have benefited far more uh, black Southerners and working class Americans than either party. Uh, both the Republicans and Democrats were beholden to capital, just different capitalist interests, essentially. And the populists, white and black, they knew that. And um, they, they arrayed their forces against the, the two party system. And in turn, the two party system colluded to, to crush uh, the populist Colluded meaning consciously knowing what it was doing. Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of, you know, Republican and Democratic operatives uh, were basically, in, in the South especially, but also the, the West, uh, they would uh, combine forces to ensure that the populist tickets were defeated. Uh, so they would run candidates, you know, jointly uh, or basically run candidates that were amalgamized versions of Republicans and Democrats in order to ensure 
um, that uh, the populist ticket would lose. And you know, formerly enslaved people were keenly aware of this. Uh, they they saw the populist party as a vehicle of of liberation. Uh, one formerly enslaved man in Georgia commented that the populist party of today was like the Republican Party of the 1850s. It's our it's our deliverer. Um, and this is, of course, before the populist party was uh, subsumed and uh, destroyed by incorporation into the Democratic establishment. But, but for the time, you know, in the, in the 1890s, it was both the Republicans and the Democrats that began to slander the populists as, you know, the party of, of black domination, uh, much like how the Democrats of the Civil War era slandered the Republican Party as, you know, black Republicans. And so increasingly, you know, populists in the South were unwilling to be labeled, you know, the party of black domination. And so they increasingly capitulated. But there's a golden moment of opportunity there, which, you know, really threatened to upend the two party system. Imagine how different American history would have been had that narrative worked out differently. Indeed. Your full time job now, Dale, is as a, a labor uh, organizer, a union organizer for California Nurses Association. What about the role of unions in all this? Particularly, I mean, were there biracial unions or were there unions specifically for blacks and whites? Uh, both. Uh, so there were a number of, you know, remarkable uh, biracial unions that did operate in the South. Uh, the most notable being the Knights of Labor, uh, which is a, you know, trade-based union. And they organized a number of really uh, powerful uh, biracial strikes, especially in the sugarcane fields of, of Louisiana. Uh, but other unions, you know, some would argue most unions were racially segregated or simply excluded black people altogether. Um, you know, one example would be the Farmers Alliances, which developed in the agrarian parts of the nation, the West and the South, uh, and really provided the sort of seedbed for the populist party. Well, those Farmers Alliances were, were segregated. There was a white one and then there was a colored Farmers Alliance. Uh, and so they basically worked uh, for similar purposes, but the you know, black unions and black farmers alliances were much more attuned to civil rights issues uh, than their white counterparts. And so they presented a more you know, radical front, uh, which was you know, more, uh, more about advancing the you know, unionist line among white unions than it was uh, contesting. Uh, what they were fighting for as well. It was just advancing the unionist project in really important and meaningful ways. And the failure of the white unions to incorporate them or to adopt their principles and you know, policies was their own undoing in many ways. One could argue, I, I guess, that the left in America, the progressive left, has, has really never recovered from these failures before the First World War. Got Michael Tomaski on the show this week. He has a new book out, The Middle Out, The Rise of Progressive Economics and a Return to Shared Prosperity. I, I'm, I'm not sure whether he's realistic or more hopeful. What do you think the progressive left, um, Dale, can learn from this period and from your book? The, the, the contemporary progressive left in America, the Tomaskis of the mm -hmm. world. Yeah, there's, I think there's a lot to learn. So one of the main things that my book should alert readers to is the, the subtle but you know, sinister ways in which radical widespread demands uh, can be bureaucratized and can be you know, pushed through a kind of sieve. Um, and we see that with you know, the, the Build Back Better agenda, but the best example I think is the you know, widespread demand for federal universal single payer. 
uh, in the first decade of the 21st century uh, and how you know, Obama ran on that ticket promising you know, single payer or at least a public option. And what we got instead was the Affordable Care Act, uh, which was a bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, everybody hates it. Uh, and it was essentially a handout to the private insurance industry on a scale you know, previously incomprehensible. And so that is one you know, example that uh, really should get the progressive left to think more seriously about the role of the administrative state. Uh, the late David Graeber uh, noted- Yeah, I was gonna bring uh, Graeber up actually. In his Especially utopia in terms of, of his yeah. theories of bureaucracy. Definitely, I mean, he says that we live in, as Americans, we live in the most bureaucratized nation in the world, uh, but we don't really think about bureaucracy much at all. And in fact, there really isn't a left critique of bureaucracy. There's a right one, which is, you know, perverted and, you know, based on a sort of anti-statist individualism. But the left really doesn't have a critique. And if it does, it's a rather milquetoast one. So, so I would hope that, you know, my book would be a contribution to an emerging, you know, leftist critique of, of bureaucracy. And there's no better agents to voice that critique than, than the formerly enslaved who understood uh, that this, you know, administrative state that was emerging in the post-emancipation period was very much arrayed against their collective interests. And so they insisted that the bureaucracy, you know, should, you know, relieve administrative burdens, uh, that it should be responsive, and that it should be democratic, uh, that they should be able to elect uh, their bureaucratic representatives. And they tried to do so time and time again to help facilitate their bounty and pension claims. But, you know, that's just not the way that the bureaucratic state developed. It developed along a very different register that was supposedly insulated from democratic politics uh, and really, you know, uh, devoted towards a kind of emerging expertise uh, that was, you know, uh, insulated from... Right, a kind of Fordism. Uh, yeah. A utilitarianism. Some people might be watching this down and thinking, well, why is this guy complaining? You got your state in the end. You got your new deal. How does the new deal in retrospect play on this was the new deal what many progressives in the late 19th early 20th, 20th century wanted or was it in the way you described uh, obamacare a kind of uh, uh, a milk toast version mm -hmm. of what the left wanted in the late 19th century mm -hmm. well it's it's a very complicated question there's been a lot of you know uh, scholarly ink spilled on the topic um, the New Deal was, you know, very much a, a triumph uh, in, in many respects of, you know, the creation of a, of a welfare state and especially the Social Security Act, uh, what it eventually became, at least when it finally incorporated agricultural and domestic workers, which had been excluded as a class, 20 million people, half the American workforce, uh, excluded from the benefits of Social Security, uh, not by virtue of Southern congressmen, as, you know, is often assumed, but rather... It was suggested by, by an administrator of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, uh, suggested it would be too much of an administrative burden. Well, we had a show on the Morgenthau's recently. There's a major new book out on it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a good book as well. Um, and it's, you know, Morgenthau was the one who suggested that it would be too burdensome to try and incorporate casual laborers. And so he suggested that agricultural and domestic workers be excluded. So that was, yeah, a, a 15 million uh, people, the vast majority of or the you know, half of the working class. Um, so, I guess I, mean, I asked the question wrong, Dale, given the context of this uh, conversation. 
I wasn't really asking broadly about the New Deal. I was asking about the New Deal in the context of African-Americans. Mm -hmm. Right. So the New Deal in the context of African-Americans uh, was, you know, for many, uh, the time in which, you know, black Southerners and Northerners, you know, black Americans in general, finally recaptured state recognition. The state finally, you know, acknowledged you know, some semblance of responsibility for its citizens, including its, its black citizens in the rural South, which, you know, most black Americans were still locked in the rural South. And so they were incorporated in, um, in the, the New Deal programs uh, in various ways, you know, not, not as fully as they ought to have been. I mean, segregation uh, was still rampant throughout the various New Deal programs. Uh, but, you know, for many historians, this was a kind of you know, harbinger of the civil rights movement of the of the 1960s, right? The New Deal uh, broke with the you know reactionary shift to the right and signaled a new role for an activist federal government in the lives of of American citizens and especially uh, those of the producing classes. And so, it was, let's, you know, yeah, let, let, let's end there. Uh, on perhaps the most controversial subject of all, you touched on it earlier, reparations. We did a show a few months ago with Bar Baynard Woods, who argues that what he calls the white racist totalitarian system in America permeates the entire history of the country and why he believes at least reparations might be the only fix. He's certainly not alone in that argument. What's your take in the context of the successes and failures of the Freedmen's Bureau after emancipation on, on the reparations issue? Well, I think to, to fully satisfy the requirements for reparations, it would mean more than just, you know, a one-time payout. It would mean something, you know, similar to what the, you know, Black activists of the you know, 1880s and 1890s demanded as as reparations, which was, you know, a recurring pension, a stipend based on age uh, for every formerly enslaved individual. And here it would have to be broadened because there are no, you know, formerly enslaved people living today. There are plenty of descendants of formerly enslaved people, millions, in fact. And so reparations would have to mean something like a recurring pension uh, to those people. But even more so, I mean, dialing back the clock, you know, a few decades to the original, you know, demands for reparations and what would actually be necessary to undo slavery, uh, we have to look to the demands of 1865, the demands that were eventually perverted by the federal administrative state. And that was a demand for, you know, widespread land redistribution. Uh, that was the only way in the mid-19th century and the late 19th century to radically shift uh, power. Uh, in the United States. And so a, a true reparations program today would also have to address issues of power. It couldn't simply be a monetary fix. It would, it would also have to address issues of, of landedness and, and property and uh, the ability of you know, families to survive and to pass on their, their wealth and security in society. It's a complicated, painful conversation. It's not going away, but it needs to be had. And you've done a great job by, I think, uh, Dale, and a painstaking job in administering freedom, the state of emancipation after the Freedmen's Bureau for people interested in this period and subject, and it's an essential read. Congratulations on the new book. Well, what else um, would you suggest people read to make sense of the tragic complexity of American history? 
Well, I would I would suggest uh, another book on on the administrative state, which is very very useful and very thought provoking. It's called Administrative Burden uh, by Pamela Hurd and Don Moynihan. Um, and as well, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but David Graeber's uh, work, The Utopia of Rules. Um, that's another fascinating and much needed look at at bureaucracy and how bureaucracy, you know, shapes you know every every aspect of our existence, even if we don't acknowledge it. It's the water in which we swim, and it would absolutely be necessary to make you know a full comprehensive picture of our current political and economic situation. Yeah, and thinking of Graeber's argument, what occurs to me is that state-employed bureaucrats are much more accountable, much should be much more transparent than the kind of bureaucrats we have to, or most of us have to deal with on a daily basis who work for the healthcare companies or the other privatized networks and platforms that dominate uh, American life. Absolutely. Yeah. And the private and public sectors are very much, you know, muddied uh, when you're talking about bureaucracy. They borrow from each other. They're you know, virtually indistinguishable in many respects. Um, and we should we should pay attention to that and his so-called iron law of liberalism, which states that, you know, any any pro-market endeavor to reduce red tape actually produces uh, more red tape and more administrators and more bureaucrats in order to make it, you know, market friendly. And so it's another irony of bureaucracy and of American history, which uh, deserves full appreciation.